on today's show. We are getting to know Dr. Josh. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. And Dr. Josh spent a whole lot more on his doctorate than I did on mine. <laughs> so thanks, Josh, for uh, coming on, letting people get to know you, man. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here, man. It's nice to meet you officially. Yeah. And funny, funnier or fun fact is you are the second person who is trending on Twitter from Business Insider to come on the podcast. Nice. Yeah. Uh, small world. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's something that I find interesting with Twitter when people start trending. You see them in print and then like I've noticed this with um, news media where I've watched people get interviewed for 20 minutes and then you see the clip on the local news and it's like 20 seconds. And I was reading the article and it seemed like you had a decent amount of like you in the article. Um, but basically for listeners, the article was something about you having over 300 grand in student debt to get your medical degree and that $10,000 wouldn't be like enough to even put a dent in it. And, uh, let me do it justice. So meet a medical school graduate with over 360 in student loans and says 10,000 forgiveness wouldn't make a difference. And it kind of makes you sound like a schmuck, right? You're like, woe is me. It totally did. 
And then your tweet, which I love, and I was like, I got to talk to this guy, was LOL at the sensational title. <laughs> um, I, I said that I'm fortunate to have a strong income potential after the training and an equitable approach should be should probably be to help others who don't. And that's totally the takeaway, right? And the article was like clickbaity headlines. So long intro by me, but let's start at how did you become an article guy? How did you even get up with Insider to get in the article? I, I think it began with, I've tweeted before, how anyone in higher education often needs to have tons of student loans that one way or another we signed off on when we were children, right? I didn't rent, uh, didn't originally think I was going to medical school, but when I was 17, I thought, oh, I'm going to go into science. So I went to an expensive college and I went to a graduate school and I went to a medical school. Now I'm waking up, I'm 27 now, um, 360 grand in debt. So the original why they wanted my take was to kind of say, how interesting is it that I can't buy, buy a house or a mortgage when I'm 17, but I could sign away tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans that I'm going to pay for a very long time. That was the original thought where it began. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And you can't rent a car. Whole, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like yeah. to go on top of that, yes, you can die in the military apparently, but you can no longer buy cigarettes, can no longer buy alcohol, can't rent a car right. even past 21, but you can take on three, 360 K in my neck of the woods, Southern Delaware, really nice home. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And that, I'm from upstate New York. I have a similar, like you can buy like a two bed, two bath on some land that you can mow and like, you can get some serious uh, ownership out of that amount of money. Yeah. Um, now that I'm on Long Island, it's a little different, but I'm, I'm similar <laughs> as well. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but the point I was trying to emphasize is it is pretty crazy when you start to think about the cognitive awareness and the foresight in future and the amount that you're signing up for at that age. Yeah. It, it really doesn't Definitely. seem rational when you start listing all the other things you don't trust people at 17 or 18 to do. Right. Definitely. And that's what I was trying to say in that part of the article was let's give some financial awareness to kids because I was the first person in my family to go into medicine, to go into science. And my parents were like, like muzzle top, Josh, like have fun in college. We have no <laughs> idea what you're about to do. But some kind of financial awareness as a kid, like state school versus private school. Can you live in an apartment and have ramen noodles and rice and beans for a couple of years? Do you really need to buy sushi? Some kind of understanding of the, the ramifications of finances would have been huge for me. But instead, I was learning about like Saturn and whatever else when I was in high school. You know what I mean? Yeah, I so I'm a teacher and I've come up with two things that I think our math curriculum should shift to after like geometry algebra two. One is I think we should teach gambling. I, okay. I want to do gam like the way that gambling is becoming nationalized. And when I go to casinos, I see dudes who I can imagine as students not giving a fuck about like proportions, ratios, probability. But if it was real life gambling slash stock market, like day trading type thing where you could see it and you had to research, read and like understand how little variables equal disproportionate payouts and risk. I'm like, right. I feel like any 17 year old, especially dude, 
would love that. And the yeah. other thing is financial literacy, understanding more, not just like balancing a checking account, because that's kind of over, but understanding credit, how to build credit, how to, yeah. uh, how to apply for a mortgage, what your debt to income ratio should be, like just pie charts and throwing, like almost playing like the game of life. Like, oops, right. unexpected pregnancy, figure it out. You're in your third year yeah. of, you know, your undergrad, what do you want to do? And it's like, wow, right. big life choice. And then you play it out like scenario wise. I feel like junior and senior year, that should definitely be a math credit unless you're whatever, hell bent on being some sort of like engineer and you need trigonometry. Right. No, I totally agree. Just, yeah. And it doesn't have to be like building a perfect budget or anything, but just how to have some basic awareness of where your money is going. Like before uh, my daughter was born, we were spending a lot on like wine, like a lot of people in the pandemic were, you know, Dude. like we're stuck at home. So you might as well drink wine, you know, but it's like, huh, we're spending 200 bucks a month on wine and 300 bucks a month on food. That doesn't really add up. Well, like that's not the best use of our money. You know what I mean? But like, it's so easy since everything's so automated to not keep track of those things. Yeah. Um, but if I had some kind of awareness when I was 18, as opposed to, 26, you know, that those habits could have really built by now. And I'm kind of trying to retroactively do that now. Yeah. Which I imagine would be tough with that sort of, um, debt hanging over you. Mm -hmm. So, and I, probably cause I cut you off and I tend to do, I'm trying to get better. My, um, my life goal at this point as a podcaster is to not interject as often. I have too many thoughts and I don't hold them back. Um, I hear you. But I never actually let you finish on how the connection happened. So you just tweeted out and then people from Insider email messaged you and wanted to do your story about you thought decision making. Yeah, I had some tweet along the lines of like, it's crazy how much debt I'm in. And I have little knowledge of how to pay it off. Like I'm still now as a resident working 80 hour weeks, just learning my craft. I'm in emergency medicine. Um, and I still don't have a ton of awareness of how to pay these things off. So someone from Insider um, responded to my tweet and was like, can I interview you? And I try to, early in my career, take every opportunity to talk to someone else, mostly because I feel like science nerds or physicians in general are not great at talking to regular folks, <laughs> right? Like you have some people like um, – that make a career around going on the news or things like that. But by and large physicians, we're really good at talking to our colleagues and our big syllable, fancy words. But most of our careers spent talking to patients. And I feel like I really want to get better at communicating with people in a non-science background. Cause I feel mm. like with misinformation and things being so rampant now, we're really behind the game because people spreading misinformation are great at talking to regular folks, you know what I mean? So I feel like we have a lot of catching up to do as a field. And that's kind of why I'm trying to, to do things like this, just to talk to regular folks or folks not in healthcare um, to kind of make up for that deficit. Yeah, if you could just present diagnoses and like memes, you'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> Just like this sure. information, two lines and a fucking cool picture. And you're like, must be true. You're like, is yeah. it even cited? Is there a source? Yeah. Nope, and doesn't it's hard matter. Because so many, so many healthcare folks think it's like this high and mighty career like we're better than that 
or we're better than memes, but like this is just how people communicate now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I doubt when the telephone came out, people were like, oh no, we must speak in person. We can't talk over the phone. And then they adapted. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think people just kind of need to get off their high horse a little bit and just meet people where they're at. And if that's memes, it's memes. You know what I mean? If it's helping people stay healthy, that's really all I'm trying to do. Dude, that's really... How did you gain that perspective? Because that's a really nice awareness on your part to care that much about your patients to be able to want to effectively communicate with all sorts of people, not just that... What would what did they call that like echo chamber? Like not I I don't know if yeah. it exactly applies, but basically you're just around your same people and it's easy to communicate that way. Yeah, echo chamber definitely fits. You know, I spend 80 hours a week with other residents who are also physicians and we're all nerds in the same way. So it's easy to get stuck in my own bubble like anything else. If you're Republican or Democrat or this or that, people kind of get stuck in people yeah. who are similar to them. But I think my perspective came from uh, having a non-medical family. Like my dad's uh, a shrink. My mom grew up on a farm in like rural upstate New York. Like the the healthcare space was not really accessible to us. Um, as an adult, like I was on Medicaid and I had a job and then I lost insurance. So a lot of things seemed out of reach for us. Mm. So I think that's why it's a priority for me to meet people where, where they're at as opposed to expecting people to come to me as if I deserve people to come to me. You know what I mean? Um, so I think just my upbringing and my perspective on having a non-medical family really informed how I communicate with patients now. Well, that's always the critique of the doctor is that, well, one of the critiques, I shouldn't say the critique, but the biggest one, I guess I hear from people is like, they never have any fucking time. So like I get them for four minutes and they always want to roll. But the other thing is like, bring someone with you to ask questions because you get overwhelmed and you get like almost self-conscious as a patient because you're dealing, you're in the doctors for a reason. So you're already dealing with that. But then if you add the syllables <laughs> to the explanation, now I've got a process while dealing with my emotions. So I, yeah. I think it's awesome that you're making that a priority to reflect on how you communicate um, to just help people be comfortable around you. Because I want, I I would imagine once people settle in, it's so much easier to help them and get to what actually matters. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. You know, I I feel like you you mentioned the doctor who only has four minutes to talk, and they probably spend eighty percent of that time on the computer, right? Like I feel like people <laughs> in the primary care setting uh, have that have had that experience. Part of that isn't the doctor's fault because they don't get to make their own schedule and they have no choice but to see these patients. Right. Um, but I feel like as a doctor, it's kind of like you, you feel like you can just kind of brute force a visit and tell the patient, like, this is what we're going to do. Shut up. Take my advice, whatever. But in reality, that takes way more time because you come off like a jerk. The patient shuts down and then you have more of a back and forth. Whereas if you come in and say, like, hey, man, I just said a lot of words like, what questions do you have? Like, where'd you get lost every day? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you get lost? Like, do you know what a gallbladder is? Probably not. I wouldn't know. You know what I mean? Like let's rewind a bit. And you end up saving time when you do that because the patient feels heard. The rapport is established immediately and you can really, uh, go, go with really good care faster and everyone's happy at the end of the visit. Um, so that's just something in my experience that I'm trying to go with. Yeah. I feel What's it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure. 
And it's like, yeah. if you gave up an ounce instead of a gram of your time early on, I would imagine if you have that rapport with the patient later on, it just gets easier and easier and probably takes less and less time to communicate because there's trust established. And on top of that, you kind of know how to communicate, how the patient wants to be communicated with. It's a lot like teaching, to be honest with you, as you're talking about that, like teachers can over talk kids with tier three jargon. And you're like, Whoa, 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 I'm sorry. Do you know what a coefficient is? Let's back up. (laughs) Do you like the number on top? And you're like, Oh, okay. And you're like, that's what I should be saying to you. Why am I trying to sound smart right now? I don't need to prove anything to you. Right. Yeah. My sister, she taught elementary school for, for several years. And that was her thing. Like, don't just like start throwing common core at kids say, well, what are they into? Oh, they all watch Paw Patrol or all, they all are into Marvel. So if I just meet them where they're at and cater to what they're already interested in, it's way more natural. Um, and adults that are sick, aren't that different. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like when we're all sick or all a little scared, the the child in us kind of comes out where we just want to feel heard and be validated. So I, I often just start there. And taken care of, right? All I want to do is lay on the couch and watch TV and have someone bring me soup, kiss me on the forehead, tell me I'll be all right. Like, I'm a straight up child. (laughs) Josh, let me go back because I'm curious about the 17 year old thing. And I'm sure you've reflected on it because you had spoken about like state school, private school. Where along your $360,000 journey have you figured out man, I could have cut corners here or I could have been more frugal. You've mentioned like the sushi and the eating habits, but I'm really curious about the instruction or the institutional choices because, and again, um, I really suck at asking questions quickly and succinctly, but I feel like you get into a college, you're like, I want to be in the best and the name matters, the brand matters. And if you have ambitions past a four-year degree, I didn't. But like, I imagine you want to stretch a little bit more because you're so optimistic about the power of the brand. And that's where like my question's coming from where you like, fuck man, I should have done two years at community college, saved 20 grand and then transferred credits. And then it really didn't matter in the long run. Yeah. You know, for me, it was in graduate school. So for me, uh, I went to a private school for undergrad, University of Rochester, it's very expensive. Fortunately, I had most of a ride. Um, so I only ended up with about 25 grand in debt after that, which I think full tuition and everything was over 200 grand. So I came out pretty okay there. And that uh, was with your, like, would that be a master's graduate degree for you? That was my undergrad. I okay. then got oh. a master's after that at Mount Sinai in New York City. And that was like 100 grand for like a year and a half. And there was like, it was a master's, I had no scholarship and I just paid that out front. And then I was starting to do the math of, okay, four years of medical school, I could be looking at half a million dollars in debt after medical school. And that was when the reality, you mentioned debt to income ratio afterwards, um, where it's gonna be less than one there. Like it's really gonna take me time to pay off this debt. So. That's why as a medical school, I went to Stony Brook. It's a state school. And beyond that, I was in a special program that let me do med school in three years instead of four, um, which was very stressful, but it saved 
a year of school and a year of tuition, and I'm going to have my full salary an additional year. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that before medical school, I started to really take stock in it um, because prior to that, I was thinking, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to make good money anyway. But when you're looking at half a million dollars in debt, which some of my colleagues are in, um, even if you're making really good money, that's that's a pretty big hole to dig yourself out of. Yeah, especially with the interest payments, um, which is something that I that's where I start to lose my fucking mind. The fact that interest is set by Congress and yeah. it really shouldn't be. Um, but I don't want to get on another tangent. So then looking back, it seems like the University of Rochester's 25K for a bachelor's super reasonable. That, yeah. that to me seems great use of debt. If you're putting that over four years, that's eight grand a year. Like yeah. that you had to borrow, that's doable. Why the Mount Sinai 100K? That's now I'm yeah. feeling like I'm judging you. <laughs> no, it's all good. No, it's a reasonable question. So part of it was I was late to the pre-med game. It wasn't halfway through my junior year when I decided I wanted to be a physician. So I was kind of late to the game there. And I had a couple C's in college, maybe partied a little bit too much, like didn't really have the competitiveness. And my wife, um, she was working in New York City. She did like fashion week and she was in a dance company. Her life was way cooler than mine in every regard. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to not be competitive just for medical school, but medical school near New York City, um, which is a pretty competitive area. So I thought, you know, the return on investment for this expensive master's would be to really guarantee my best chances of getting into a school around New York City, um, which Stony Brook on Long Island ended up being where I wound up. So was there a bunch of research that goes into if I can grab this Mount Sinai graduate degree? And actually, let me back up for a second, because as a teacher, I, I think very bachelor's you can become a teacher master's you're still a teacher you get paid more than doctorate in education you're whatever still a teacher you can be like principals you can be a principal with masters but they're very yeah. set but with the medical i guess medical pathway what's the master's in do you just pick like a master's in science a master's in anatomy or do you even get a master's or is it just they want to like weed out the party students and put you through yeah. like another two years of torture to see if you're serious? <laughs> uh, definitely the last point is a component of it. Uh, <laughs> for a lot of people who crushed college, got a 4.0, did everything perfect, they can get right into med school, totally fine. For me, there are masters of science. Mine was in like uh, biomedical science and biomechanics. Um, in part sets you up to do research better. But in reality, for me, it was just to give, give me a better chance of getting into med school in general. Um, there are other masters that you can get that can set you up in different ways, like public health, if you want to have more of a focus there. Or you can get an MBA if you want to like open a bunch of practices and make a ton of money. Um, for me, at this point, I am doing my training in emergency medicine. I want to be an ER doc somewhere. I just want to see sick people. I don't have huge uh, goals of like, going into business or public health, I kind of came into this field so I can see sick people in the ER and then clock out at the end of the day. That's kind of my goal. Um, but everyone with the masters, there's a bunch of different motivations that can go into it. Gotcha. So then I'm trying to think of like a decently funny and non-offensive analogy. And for some reason I went to like 
the dude who buys the Beamer to try to impress chicks when like yeah. they live in this really shitty, terrible apartment. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, like when you leave, <laughs> so a- you get like the Mount Sinai degree. It sucks that you felt that way. Now, is that reality though? Now that you got into med school, do you like appreciate the Mount Sinai thing? Or do you think you could have gone an alternative route and maybe shaved 50 K off or something? You know, I could have, um, I could have just, um, tried my chances right out of college. Maybe have gotten into a New York school, but far from New York city, which would have saved a lot of money, but my wife and I wouldn't be super happy about that. You know what I mean? I feel like a lot of this educational process, you have to, unfortunately, make a lot of decisions between saving money and time or being happier. Mm. And my goal was I can only prioritize happiness for now. And that was kind of the choice I made. So I spent the extra year or two at Mount Sinai, just grinding out in a lab, um, being pretty miserable, like babysitting doctor's kids at night and walking dogs with my wife to like try and scrape together enough rent. Cause even though we lived in Harlem, it was still, four times as expensive as home. You know what I mean? But we were together, right? That was the choice that we made. So I definitely could have done things differently and gone to med school earlier, but I think that would have been to the detriment of my own happiness. And that's just not something I was ever willing to do. Um, But that's just me. Yeah. And it's funny when you say happiness, it almost sounds superficial to you explain it. And then you're like, oh wait, it was actually like happiness in a relationship. And like starting to make a nuclear family. And that seems very justifiable, right? Yeah. Why not? Did, does it mess you up if you're applying to medical school to get rejected? So like, why not just take the chance after your bachelor's? So, uh, is that a stupid question? It's okay to be like, it's not, that doesn't make sense. It's not at all. Because I know it's, nothing it's about the controversial process. controversial because people think, you know, if you got rejected the first time, you really got to show your stuff the second time around of, you know, acknowledging your weaknesses. You took the MCAT, which is our like entrance exam. Take that again, crush it, get a job, cure cancer, save the world, whatever. You really got to <laughs> prove the second time that you got the stuff. Um, besides that, it's thousands of dollars and a ton of time just to even apply to medical school. So I applied to 30 schools and you have to do like specific essays for each school. So I probably did a hundred individual essays when I applied to 30 schools. Um, 20 of them rejected me outright. Um, 10 of them invited me for interviews, which I had to travel to pre COVID. I probably spent five or six grand in addition to all those hours just to apply to medical school. And this is after the master's. For you, right? Yeah. But this could have yeah. happened after a bachelor's. It could have. Right. But, but you're still running chances. the risk of incurring all this debt. And then on the rejection, it's like, great. Now I didn't even give myself a fair. Okay. I'm starting to understand it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yeah. cut you off, but I wanted to make sure. No, it's I all understood. good. There's definitely a risk, but like super glad I only had to apply once. Cause I had to like take out an extra credit card to pay for the first credit card and then babysit a bunch of kids. But also I had a remote job that I did at night while I was babysitting kids so I could double dip and pay off all these things just to even have a chance to apply. You know what I mean? So the risks are are super high for folks who, I mean, there's nothing wrong from not coming from money, but like my parents couldn't shell out 
six grand on helping me out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so there are definitely a lot of challenges that go into even having a chance to apply, let alone getting in and um, all the money required and just passing medical school and all those things. So. Yeah, see, if yeah. I want to be boomer, get off my lawn, dude, I want to say, why the fuck are there not grants for that? Why is there not like, yo, I want my best and brightest with the opportunity. And you know what I'm going to do if I'm the federal government? I'm just going to piss away a million dollars in letting people apply. I'm going to make you jump through a little bit of a hoop. Let's whatever, peruse your essay. See, you got yeah. a chance. Hey, man, you're worth sponsoring. Here's some money. Go apply to four medical schools and we're going to yeah. pay for it. Like that... Seems like a real simple, some fucking senator somewhere should put that out there and just get some goodwill to help I, I us be elite. I agree completely. That, that does sort of exist where you can apply for assistance with applying, but regardless of how old you are. So I've been an independent since I've been an adult. Like my parents aren't bankrolling my life anymore, but they still ask for your parents' income, even if you're not receiving any of that money. Uh... Um, and my dad, he's a social worker, but he's worked 70 hour, hour weeks since I've been alive. So he makes pretty good money, um, which doesn't go very far in New York. And it's not like he can't just drop six grand on his kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the fact that he was over some threshold meant that I wasn't getting any of that assistance with applying. I did. Fortunately, I was a little scrappy with it. I emailed individually all 30 schools and was like, hey, can you just not charge me for your secondary fees? Good like for you. The like 90 bucks. And 10 of them were like, sure, man, whatever. So that was close to a grand that I saved just for asking. Um, but a lot of the other schools were like, or you could just not apply. Or I asked them and then they rejected me. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. Dude, but that's, yeah. that's, that's like very interesting. So I didn't even think about that. Like at first I'm like, there's no issue with asking, but then you do wonder if they're like, oh, this cheap motherfucker, let's flag him. As soon as he applies, done. Just because yeah. he asked. Which there were definitely a couple schools that rejected me suspiciously soon after me asking that. But I was <laughs> thinking like, how friendly of a school would that be for me? Yeah. If that's their mentality, right? Of, oh, you're not rich already? You know, like, is that a place that I would thrive? Probably not. Um, so again, there's a risk and benefit to all these things, but that was just kind of how I wanted to go into it. And I saved a grand, so it worked out okay. <laughs> Dude, that's great advice because I think a lot of people don't realize when fees are there, what, I mean, aside from not getting in, but then what you just said, do I really want to yeah. be there if that's the factor that knocks me out? Why not ask? Why not ask yeah. just to see? Save a grand. That's awesome. Yeah, I do a lot of advising for students who want to go into medical school, especially if they don't have any family in it, because it's intimidating. You know, you have like your friend who comes from a long line of neurosurgeons and another long line of plastic surgeons. Like, of course, they're going to get accepted. But it's like my mom grew up on a farm and like I don't have that. You know what I mean? Um, but I tell 100 percent of them, it's like there's a surprising level of scrappiness that is respected. Like I like cold emailed different doctors to shadow them because I needed to do that. I showed up to like my research professor's door and I was like, I can do research for free, you know, and like eventually just being scrappy and putting myself out there really paid off. Um, so there's there's definitely traits that just 
regular folks that are ready to hustle. Like I worked part-time in medical school, which is almost unheard of. And, but it was like, formula is expensive. Like what other choice do I got? So like, I'll work at night. You know what I mean? Um, so there's definitely traits that even if you're not in medicine or science or healthcare, just being like a scrappy person really pays dividends down the line. And I really try to impart that to different folks. I'm surprised at the like heredity advantage of coming from doctors. Is that yeah. a real thing? Cause they understand the process or is that a real, like on the application you have to put your parents. And if you just have doctor before your parents name, these medical schools are like, Oh, bump them to the top. Yeah. Well, so there's different things. There's definitely from a admissions director perspective, it's a lower risk potentially if you see, Oh, well, both of their parents are doctors. Everyone in their family is doctors. Like they probably know what they're getting themselves into. Can I? So that's a lower risk. I'm sorry. Yeah, because I'm glad you said lower risk twice. So lower risk, the administration directors, are people fearful of having too many medical school dropouts? Because then is that it? So to get back to the admission, but first, like, why are they fearful of having a bunch of medical school dropouts? Because those statistics, like any other college, are reportable. Like the four or five or six year graduation rate is readily known information. So if I come from a school, but 10% of my students are dropping out, people will know that. And people will not want to go to that school. But if my school says everyone who starts also finishes and goes to a residency, that's a good, that's a good thing to tell people. So it's not seen as like admissions rate where I'm elite. So if I graduate from a school where 10% of the kids fail out, that's not more appealing than going to a school where all the kids get to graduate because then you're like, I'm going to fucking get through. And then they get more applicants and they get to be a little choosier with them. Yeah, 100%. So like I'll tell pre-meds like you can go to Harvard but if you only do half of med school at Harvard and you drop out, you're 300 grand in debt and you are not a doctor. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? But if you go to Stony Brook, which like, it's a good school. I'm, I'm glad I went there, but like, it's a state school. But if we all graduate and we all go to residency, we're all doctors. You know what I mean? So there's definitely a component of you really want people who will not fail or drop out in medical schools. Um, I don't think it's 100% right that some schools think just by having doctor parents, that makes you less of a flight risk. Um, But there's definitely some bias in there. Yeah. And is that, have you, not to like name names or anything, but I'm curious, are these conversations that you just find out, how do you, how do you know this or why do you think this? So some of my work, um, some I get paid for, some I do for free, just advising students. I, I, talk to people who are admissions directors at school and the way they will phrase it is you want people who know what they're getting into, Mm. which is their coded way of, I don't want people to start seeing sick people halfway through med school and go, Oh shit, I hate this. I'm going to dip, you know, because that's not good for anyone. That's a spot that someone else could have had. And that's a student who's going to be in crippling debt probably forever. And it looks bad on the school. Like it, it's a lose, lose, lose all the way around. Um, so schools want people who have some idea what they're getting themselves into as much as someone who's not a doctor can, um, just so it's less painful for everyone down the line. 
Do you think after four years of a bachelor's, you'd realize I want to be a doctor or not? Let alone the master's after that. Well, and I guess I should ask, do you, you don't have to do the master's before you apply, right? You had said that. So you could just have a yeah. bachelor's. Yeah. yeah. Does it could. having the master's make you look more serious and more educated and give you a better advantage? It did for me because I had a couple C's yeah, the in like biology in college and I had like a 4.0 in my master's. So they were like, oh, Josh means business. Um, I think for me also, and a lot of men, because it takes a while for us to mature, that extra couple years of just like eating like crap, working all the time, not sleeping ever, like doing my own laundry and like cooking and not eating in a dining hall. That was huge in me uh, maturing as an adult. Um, and early in my marriage with my wife, just kind of figuring that out, that was huge for me because um, there are some people straight out of college are way mature than me and they can figure out med school, but I really needed those two years just to figure out how to be a person um, before I go start taking care of other people. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that's a good so point. So that was just me. Yeah, because I mean, if yeah, if you're graduating with a four-year, even if you whatever, leave senior year 19 at the super late end, do you really want 23-year-old dealing with 30, 40, 50-year-olds trying to understand their day-to-day because you don't have the life experience? That's a great point. But you get that extra two, three-year buffer of a grad degree, then it's like, okay, I'm a little more mature, 25, yeah. 26. I've and, experienced and, life. And there's, there, there's definitely a perspective I have just meeting patients who – there are some med students, especially if they come from wealthier backgrounds, that say things like, why does this guy not realize he's obese? Or don't they know that drinking and smoking is bad for them? Or <laughs> why don't they sleep more? Or whatever. And I have the perspective of at least knowing like, hey, man, like maybe working at McDonald's is the only option they've got because it gives benefits, even though the pay is garbage or whatever. Or like maybe they're working two jobs because they have a sick family member at home. Or maybe, you know, like just having that perspective of more of the human experience, um, I think is amazing. I talking to pre-meds now, I really care more about like, if you were a bartender, I care about that way more than if you worked at some fancy lab of some smart dude that I've never heard of, because a lot of healthcare is just, can you connect with a person? Can you chat them up quickly? And like, like, can you talk about some fancy cocktail that you made for someone? I care about that way more than like, did you do some fancy cancer research that no one's ever going to read that you think will impress me? You know what I mean? I'm really trying to get in people's heads. Like you don't have to come from some swanky healthcare, super smart background. Cause I think now, especially after COVID, we just need docs that can talk to people like regular people and not like there are a bunch of problems that we're trying to cure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, my, um, so my mom was a nurse and, um, towards the end of her career, she wound up doing some like CNA classes at a community college. Mm. And something she noticed right away was patient care with the, with her students. And she would always encourage something simple as like, Hey, as you're talking to an older person, maybe just hold their hand. Or if you're taking like vitals and the blood pressure, you know, like there's something you can do the humanistic aspect of putting people at ease And what that'll do is give you more accurate readings because people come in with anxiety and we hear it all the time as like teachers. It's like in a parent teacher conference, 
if you've called the parent in, there's probably a level of anxiety of like, fuck, I'm not good enough as a parent. And you yeah. almost have to be like, dude, no, 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 no. You're fine as a parent. Let me establish a rapport. Quicker I do that, quicker we get to problem solving. So, yeah. I mean, you've been saying that a bunch, but that's that's just a, such an awesome and refreshing perspective that you have. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It's funny you mentioned the hand thing because that's now when, that I'm a resident doctor and I work with med students, I say never leave the room of an elderly woman without holding her hand or like talking about her earrings or like commenting about the old brooch that she's got that's right. 80 years old or things like that. Just because if you walk into a room and you're like, hey, you have a bunch of problems, see ya, and then you leave, you have no connection there. But I've gotten so much valuable information just from like looking someone in the eye, holding their hand a little bit, like, or, or just like talking about a book they read recently, things like that. It really does help. Um, you wouldn't think it would with the education we get and how it's so medically oriented, but these like, I get, they're called soft skills or whatever, yeah, are really skills. the more important ones, in my opinion. Yeah, it's humanistic, right? That's interesting. So there's not like just a humanistic psychology elective here and there, like people skills? There, There is some with the caveat of when you um, – are trying to be a person, it's still, you're trying to be a person and you're checking the 75 boxes that you got to check on the computer yeah. to send to the insurance so we can bill for the visit. You know what I mean? It's not just like, tell me about the weather. It's like connected with the patient about the weather. Check. Like gotcha. it's, it's pretty robotic. Um, I think there's so many things we need to keep in our minds as medical professionals that there's some level of rigidity that you need to have, but um, I'm more of the mindset of start as a personable person first and then think about all the boxes afterwards um, because just through normal conversations with patients, you can kind of check all those boxes in your mind. Um, I'm still learning that a lot. I still have a lot in my education to go. Um, but yeah, I, I wish there was way more of like how to be a person 101 than all these random like metabolic disorders that I'm never going to see in my entire career that I have knowledge of. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's so true because like you're obviously you're smart enough to learn and it's like what should we prioritize that these people learn and i'd be very interested on studies of like and i don't even know how you would like set up the experiment but just like a real personable individual versus a real like content knowledgeable individual and yeah. they give patients advice about whatever, diabetes, right? Hey, here's what's going on. Here's how you can cure it. Boom. But they go about it in their own way. And then you go like whatever, six months, 12 months, 18 months later, and you see the results of the patients, but you can't have the same patient too. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be a really cool experiment to be to maybe put validity on just slowing down, treating people like people. You yeah. know, but the for-profit model just seems to fuck that all up, man. Yeah, Along it's with tough when money is involved. Yeah, because yeah. you're trying to balance debt. And like that was part of your article that I thought was awesome. But numbers-wise, I couldn't wrap my head around. So I'm like, dude's 360 in debt. He's going to uh, be a doctor. What Do you make like a quarter million a year clear? I, I don't know if you want to share, but I'm like, is average yeah. salary quarter mil? So, so I'm going to be an emergency physician. 
Fortunately for me, one of my great interests in the field is I will have an hourly rate, um, regardless of how many patients I see, how many tests I do, if they're super sick, or if they have a splinter in their foot, like I will make the same amount in a shift, which I really like that for me. I never would want to decide, oh, if I do an MRI, I'm going to get paid more. I just never wanted to have that That's terrible. cloud my judgment. That's so scary. It's hard. Dude, that's so yeah. scary that you say that, that that is an option that's out there. There are, for some specialties, sometimes it makes sense. If I'm a surgeon, I should get paid more probably for a 12-hour surgery than a 20-minute surgery. That's just math, right? Part of it makes sense. Um, because if I got paid the same, I would never do a 12-hour surgery. I would only do 20-minute surgeries, right? Because they have kids to feed to or whatever, right? Um, but for me, I never wanted that math. So that's why emergency medicine was appealing to me. Um, for the areas I want to live in, um, if you are an ED doc around New York City, you might make 250 k ish a year. Um, upstate in less desirable places where people don't want to live um it could be three or 350k a year um if you work 40 hours a week and the benefit of me being a little scrappy like i'll work 70 hours a week like i'll crush this debt early you know what i mean yeah i'm gonna have that option and other specialties won't um but the the quote on the article of 10k won't make a difference for me the point of it was i have friends who are teachers who got their master's in education, they're 90, 100K in debt, yeah. whatever. They're not making 300 grand a year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Give that 10K to the people who have less of an ability. If you're a teacher, you can't just work twice as much. You know, you're a salary employee. So and my sister was a teacher. My mother-in-law is a teacher. You can't just like double your hours. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was less of a, um, I, I didn't want to look like a schmuck and like, Oh, feel bad for me. I just wanted those resources to go to people who have less of an ability to pay off their debt. That so, seemed like the more fair thing to me. Dude, fucking hundred percent. And um, <laughs> the earning potential should absolutely be equated into the amount that you get towards your student debt if it, you have it. Yeah. So it, it's funny because it came back to me. Um, there was another insider article, and you're gonna love this one. This side, this title. Meet a teacher with 303,000 in student yeah. debt who says Biden's 10 grand loan forgiveness plan is not even a drop in the bucket. Now that's the yeah. title of the article. So that's the one I read and I'm like, wait, this lady's 54. She only has a master's. Like, and yeah. again, I'm a teacher and I was able to get a bunch. I have my fucking doctorate <laughs> and uh -huh. I like, I have zero debt. And yeah. I work summers and there's credit applicant. I'm like 303 grand. What were you doing? And I found out the lady had to take out a ton of loans because she's like 54. It was a midlife crisis change. She wound up mm -hmm. adopting kids, almost similar to you, where you were like, yo, I got to provide for a family while I'm in school. So yeah. I need additional money. Yeah. That's not what the article said. 303 to be a teacher. Like that's just stupid. You, you, sh yeah. there's no ROI on that. Um, yeah. But the equitable standpoint, the fact that you can make that money up quicker would be, would, should mean that you don't need as much forgiveness as someone who borrowed the money to have a career where they don't have that opportunity. Or yeah. It's hard to have that, that opportunity. Sense. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I just, I was, it, it was funny because it was like a flashback 
of how did I message this guy? Why am I on this insider? And I was so angry at insider for having a fucking teacher on there with $303,000 down. I'm like, that's so unrealistic for a teacher. Yeah. 303 just seems unrealistic. Yeah, but still, even if it was, what, 80 grand or 90 yeah. grand, there's yeah. some teachers that cap out 40, 50, 60 grand a year, you know? Yeah. Like, that's that's a tough thing. If you're going to live um, I, like a decent middle-class lifestyle and have savings <laughs> and like start yeah. putting money away for your kid's college and drive a decent yeah. car. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I'm very curious about the earning potential. So have you gotten to the point? Do you read books now to figure out, out, how to pay debt off quicker. Yeah. How did you get like financially literate being so ignorant early on? And I don't mean ignorant early on, like in like an insulting way. No, ignorance is an accurate term. So there are <laughs> fortunately a lot of financial advisors who are specifically working with physicians or there are physicians out there that specifically give education for physicians, people with incredible earning potential but also stupid amounts of student loan debt. Um, the long and short of it is kind of twofold. Uh, spend less money than you earn is the first thing. It's how you lose weight <laughs> as well, right? Eat less than yeah. you burn. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how a lot of things come out to like eat vegetables and exercise and sleep. You know, it's not that complicated. Um, yeah, the no other sushi, thing, ramen noodles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing, um, which for me growing up in a, Middle class. I, I thought I was upper middle class until I met a lot of doctors' kids, and I don't feel the same way. But it's don't. If you've ever heard the term "keeping up with the Joneses," yeah. like don't buy a Tesla because you feel like you deserve one. You know, don't buy a big five-bedroom doctor house just because you feel like you deserve it. You know what I mean? Like I drive a 2003 Camry that's crunched up in the front. The air conditioning does not work and the windshield is cracked, and I bought it for $2,500, you know what I mean? And I'm a doctor, like I have an MD after my name. But it's also like, I got no money, and I'd rather spend money on formula right now for my kid, you know what I mean? So really have your priorities in order um, of what you need money to do for you and your family, as opposed to how it looks like to other people. Dude, um, that's so that's much kinda... confidence. That, that seems like an unusual confidence to me um, not, I, I don't want to be super vulgar with the analogy that just came into my head about pristine and imposter syndrome, which I think a lot mm -hmm. of people find. So when you're early on in a profession, you can either be real outrageous and overconfident, or you can be kind of like, I need to prove myself and pulling into a parking lot in a Camry to me would fuck with my self-esteem like crazy. And I would immediately feel yeah. completely inept. And the yeah. fact that you're able to do that again is like, can I give you, where can I give you like a five-star Google rating just for you <laughs> being you? Well, how can that I'll help let you, you know. <laughs> Cause dude, that's awesome that you have that kind of confidence. It, it, it's, it does not seem, it, to me, it does not seem normal. Yeah. I appreciate the kind words. That's super nice of you. I, I guess it's just like, especially during the pandemic, my perspective on life really became if I wake up and my wife and my kid are okay and the like 10 people that I care about most in my life are okay. 
why the fuck would I care about if Starbucks was out of the wrong kind of milk or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, why would I care about low fat almond? That's all you have. Yeah, man. Like perspective was a big thing for me, especially now in the emergency department. A lot of my time in medical school was spent around critical care um, just by the nature of how sick people were with COVID and the amount of like ventilated patients who I held up an iPad so their family could say bye to them because I couldn't be in the hospital, right? Because they had COVID and there were precautions, you know, like what the fuck am I worried about? You know what I mean? So like, I'd like to think I have some kind of super confidence or whatever. I'm not a super confident guy. I'm really insecure about my academic ability, but like my perspective on life is like my family's healthy. I don't care what my car looks like. You know what I mean? Um, So I think COVID did a lot of that. I think my family upbringing did a lot of that. Like my parents never thought like I never had to be the best at literally anything. I never had parents that cared about my grades, but if I was just like a nice dude and I like held the door open at a McDonald's for the woman behind me, my mom acted as if I won like a Nobel Peace Prize. You know what I mean? Like those were the things that were instilled in me in a young age. Um, And I'm really fortunate for that um, because I really just don't care about money or status or things like that all that much at all. God. I want, I, it's funny before we were recording, I was like joking about like, Hey, you're going to be Senator Dr. Oz or whatever in like 20 years with your Twitter, (laughs) with your Twitter follow. And like your perspective, man, how do we keep you pure? How how do we not get the filth of the medical system on you, man? And that's completely unbiased. And I have no idea about the medical system, but I'm so scared that all of a sudden it's going to turn into like, you're a fucking plastic surgeon in 20 years, charging people (laughs) 150 grand for like an hour consultation to increase the density and height of their buttocks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's definitely a portion of, I've met a lot of attendings who've done this for a long time that are jaded and I don't blame them for it. It's hard in our healthcare system uh, to feel like to properly take care of a patient, you might risk like bankrupting them or things like that. That's not why any of us go into this field. We just want to help people. We don't want to make people financially decide uh, things regarding their health. I think another part of it, um, I don't know. I don't see myself caring about money that much. Um, therapy helps. <laughs> I've been in therapy for a long time. Like, um, I recommend that to every med student, like before things get super rough, like just see a therapist a couple times a year so that when you see that one patient, like for me being a dad, having a one-year-old, like I've seen a couple of children die. Um, oh and that'll God. fuck with me for a while, but like Dude. getting out ahead of those things, Um, and talking to someone and really like, I never felt weak about talking about things that troubled me. It might be because my dad's a social worker and that was a normal thing in my household. Um, but those kind of things keep me happy. Um, but I think a lot of it is just like, my aspirations aren't like, I don't care if I'm like some Harvard professor or whatever. I just want to see sick people and then go to my daughter's dance recitals. Like those are pretty much like the only priorities I have in life. And I really hope that doesn't change. Yeah. I mean, dude, I I don't know. It's funny. Like I was almost late for recording today because there was like a spontaneous track meet. My daughter's 12. She's into track and she runs. And um, it was Uh like the track coaches from the high school were like, hey, community track meet. And she was like, oh, can I go? And I was like, cool. And it said, started at five. 
registration was at five. So it didn't start till <clears> six <throat> and it threw off my whole fucking night for an hour. And I'm like, I can't miss her running the 800. And it's like, yeah. cause you just want to be there. I don't care if she wins. I just want her to know when she's done, like, dude, I was there. I watched you. Like that was cool. So yeah. if you have that perspective now, I feel like the relationship matters. The life matters. Yeah. And you should, that should most likely stay with you. I, I don't think you lose that in any way, man. That's an awesome, again, very grounding humanistic perspective. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I, nah, dude, way to dad. Way to dad. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny, man, how much just fucking being around as a dad um, matters. Just the fact that you're fucking there and your kid knows yeah. like, it's not like a judgment he's there. It's just like a, it gives them such confidence to be like, someone's there and that really matters. Yeah. And it's cool that you're like, I want to have the hourly and help people, but I also have to balance my life to not have it consume me. So like, I'm sure yeah. you're the dude where like, oh fuck, whatever, I got a weekend. Hey, let me grab a couple shifts versus, oh, yeah. something's coming up. I'm very sorry. I cannot take it because I got to be at the recital or got to be at her whatever Girl Scout thing. Yeah. I take a lot of lessons from my dad. So he, um, he would work 12 hour days, six days a week until his mom got sick. And then that sixth day of the week, he spent taking care of her finances, cleaning her house, whatever. My dad worked 60, 70 hours. But the things that he always made time for, like he drove me to school every day. Yeah. He asked me about every test I ever had. Yeah. He probably only went to 20%. I played tennis in high school. He only made it to like 20% of my matches. But like I knew when he went there, like he came, saw my match, and then went back to work. Like mm. those kind of things. Like I, I've learned that um, – what's the term presence over presence, like presence CE yeah. over giving presence. Like when my dad was there, he wasn't like watching the bills game, go bills. We're bills fans. Like watching the bills game, drinking a beer, whatever. He was like sitting there and asking like, Oh, how was your history test? Cause you hate history. Dad, I still hate history, whatever. Like the time <laughs> he was there, it was a meaningful connection. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And my wife knows as well, like I'm going to be working a lot. But when I'm home, I try to be like, present. like you, yeah, you fortunately have this, like, I just put my daughter to bed right before this podcast, because I don't dare after being at the hospital all day, do this for two hours and then miss my daughter. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like the, the effort is there, but it's hard, man. Like as a dad, you never feel like you're quite doing the right thing, but you're always trying your best. I don't know if you feel that way too. Dude, I think um, that's how you know you're doing the right thing when you feel like I'm not doing enough. Yeah. Because what does that make you do? It makes you, fuck it, man. I'll get up whatever, 20 minutes early. Hey, man, you can yeah. have five friends sleep over. I don't mind making pancakes for 45 fucking minutes straight. I'll be yeah. a short order cook just so you can have a moment, you know? And like, that's fine. We yeah, Fuck yeah, we can get a water slide for a weekend. Why not? But like, that's why I worked and I sacrificed a little bit of fun time for me so that I could provide for you. And hopefully then she pays that forward. Like you were saying about holding the door. I actually said that to my daughter today. I'm like, there were two older ladies going out of the grocery store. And I was like, dude, grab the door, like grab the door. It's okay. And she didn't want to like make them feel rushed. You know, she was trying to be respectful and yeah. give them space. And I'm like, no dude, just be like, Hey, I got that door for you. 
and hold it. I'm like, that's golden. You don't understand how much equity you get out of being that person that observes someone else in need and you're like, yeah, 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 I got you. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah, man. So no, and but if I wasn't at that moment, if I'm not present, how do I impart that on her? Yeah, you gotta be there to reinforce that habit yeah. for sure. And I, I constantly feel like I'm not there enough. I'm, I'm not a helicopter parent because I let her have you know, freedoms, but I always want to be around. Like I just, I'm fucking around. Like, I'm sorry, if you're going out somewhere, cool, I'll be around. <laughs> like you can go yeah. have some fun. You're within eyesight. Like I'm around. And yeah. um, I think that, I don't know. I think you're, you're right about presence over presence. Like that's a great yeah. slogan. That might be what I get tattooed on my back. Sick. <laughs> midlife, midlife tattoo crisis. <laughs> yeah. Can I go back? I think the therapy thing's really cool and I had not thought about that. Yeah. I think about it with like detectives. Yeah. And I think about it with like, and is a cancer doctor and an oncologist? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think about it like a children's cancer doctor. I'm like, I don't understand how you have a functional life yeah. dealing with that sadness, but I don't think yeah. about it just with any old. And I'm super interesting how you got to that point where you chose like preventive maintenance on your mind. Yeah. I fortunately have met a lot of doctors that were open about their own mental health struggles. Um, and that was just wisdom that they imparted to me. Um, one of the interesting things about emergency medicine is you you don't get to digest the information that you get a lot of times, right? Um, we have a critical care portion of our emergency department where someone can come in with a traumatic wound or like vomiting blood or just like think of any kind of traumatic thing. And then you leave that room. And then you just see another person who has no idea that you just saw that. You don't get time to decompress. Yeah. You know what I mean? You kind of have to bottle that down because the second patient who comes in because they cut their hand slicing an avocado, they don't need to hear that you saw a kid die. You know what I mean? You don't need to put that on them. But you owe it to yourself uh, as a doctor or as anyone who sees traumatic things to prioritize your health at some point. Um, so I'm fortunate that I've had people impart to me that prioritizing your own health is good for your patients because if you can't show up for yourself for yourself how can you show up for someone else you know um so that was just fortunate circumstance for me that i got that from other people earlier in my training um yeah it's so pragmatic um and it's so simple Mm -hmm. it was actually one of the first things when um we had our child and I forget what I was. Actually, I might have been your age, maybe a year older, 28. Um, mm-hmm. But like our um, pediatrician was like, y'all got to take care of yourselves. How else would you take care of the baby? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I feel like with the time crunch and people getting angry, I don't think I've ever considered who you just saw as a doctor before you came to my room. Like you could have just given someone a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. And it's like, fuck you, man. You're five minutes late. And you know what? I got to get somewhere. How come you weren't here? Tell me about my cough. What's yeah. this bump? And you're like, yeah. ah, dude, you're allergic to Oreos. Stop eating them. And it's like, all right, 
thanks, yeah. you jerk, because you're late. And it's like zero consideration for what happened to the doctor in the previous visit or the previous two visits. That's um, yeah. I think that's some basic awareness. That's nice to think about. Yeah, I try to put that both ways, you know, like I would hope that a patient shows me some kind of respect because in the ED, especially on Long Island, we've had ridiculous patient volumes and people wait a long time to get to the ED. Um, but the amount of times I'll have a conversation with a patient where their issue seems relatively benign, but after talking to them, it comes out like, oh, well, my sister had something like this and she died or whatever. Like the context is huge. You have, I, I, I try to think about how I have no idea what's going on in anyone's life at any point ever, you know? Mm -hmm. So like if the nurse is a little short with me or if my attending is a little mean to me or if the patient feels like yelling at me, like I really try to let that run off because if they don't know what I'm going through, I definitely don't know what they're going through either. Um, and that helps too, you know, with the perspective thing, just like money or just like any of these other things, like the only things that I know about are my own thoughts, you know? Yeah. So I don't try to put any thoughts on other people. Cause I don't know, man, you know, like people are complicated, things go on, you know? Um, so that's kind of how I try to navigate healthcare and life and stuff. <laughs> 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 in life and stuff. <laughs> um, how do you squeeze in the therapy? Do you do like better help? Is there somewhere you drive? Do you just do it on the like commute where you have check-ins? Are there options for doctors like within yeah. hospitals that are like, hey, here are some go-tos? Yeah. So I'm <laughs> now that I finished med school and now I'm a doctor i'm like between insurances so i haven't gotten a little bit but fortunately in an emergent situation like oh my god i saw something super traumatic there are resources at my hospital where like if you need to talk to someone now like you can go here or you can call someone and you can talk to someone immediately those resources are available um i'm glad that they cover that in my insurance so i i, I don't really do tele or like remote therapy, I just kind of before my shift or after a shift, I would see a therapist um, who usually works with healthcare workers. So I'm fortunate to be in a healthcare system and a residency program where they're like, go to therapy, like do it. Um, because I have some other friends at other programs where they're not as open about talking about those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I've spoken to, um, had a couple of uh, police officers on um, California, I believe. Um, I called her, what did I call her? I fucked, her name was Melanie, but I kept on calling her Melanie just to like fuck with her. Um, <laughs> but she had a ton of PTSD where it was a similar situation. Like she got called somewhere where a fucking kid got shot and she's trying yeah. to give CPR and the kid dies in her arms as a cop. Yeah. And then the next day they're like, how come you didn't get enough tickets on highway patrol? And yeah. she's like shaking in her car on the shoulder, feeling like a complete fucking punk for feeling this way. And yeah. her whole premise was like, I should have, um, someone should have fucking checked in and there was zero. And I believe this was mid to late nineties. So the stigma was very different on like mental health. Mm -hmm. But her thing was like, there should be regular check-ins for people that experience these traumatic events. 
so that yeah. we can keep them right. If you're trained to help, we need to keep you primed. I need you as a Ferrari. I need everything yeah. tight and you to go full speed as soon as that light goes green. So it's awesome that you're working somewhere that prioritizes that. I'm actually very happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It is becoming more common, but it was not, it's not as common as I would like. I hope that at some point it becomes like an opt out system. Like first day of med school, nursing school, police academy, military, whatever. It's like, Hey, you all have a therapist. Like you just have it and you go once every three months and if you want to opt out, mazel tov. Like, you can do that. Yeah. Um, but I would prefer if it was that way because the amount of people that I've met that have waited until they come to a, like, very difficult circumstance, then within that circumstance, you need to establish trust with a therapist, make sure they drive with you, do all those things before they can help you. Yeah. Um, and it would just be nice to have that relationship um, from the get-go. Um, yeah. I've struggled with the PTSD factor because I never want to make it seem like the things I would see or another healthcare professional or a police officer is the same as people who have experienced war. You know, I came from a high school where a lot of folks went into the military when they were 18 and it has changed them. Um, But in my, in recent years, I've learned that I don't have to have the same experience as you in a war zone to have experienced something that were is um, worthy of respect. You know what I mean? Like we've all got our own thing um, that's worthy of respect. And I try to think of that now. Um, but that's something that, that I've been thinking about more. And yeah. Well, that's the saying too, right? And it's like my worst and your worst, even though they're different are both equally as painful because they're both our yeah. worst. And yeah. it, and we think about things that aren't mental health in the same way, right? Like physical pain, it's real. And like someone's migraines might be really bad and someone's low back pain might be really bad, but we don't try to like quantify those things. So I feel like we shouldn't quantify mental health struggles either. Um, for sure. Yeah. Cause it's so individualized. Like what tweaks, it's just like emotional triggers if I said whatever banana and for some reason you were abused by some weird banana farmer when you were 11 years old and you didn't pick bananas quick enough and every time you didn't pick them, you got beat with bananas. So I come in and I'm like, here's a banana and you're like, ah, right. I'm like that doesn't make any fucking sense. It doesn't need to yeah. make sense. It's your trigger, right? Like that's what yeah. really screws with you. And it's going to be different for everybody and other people have coping mechanisms based on how they've been brought up, the conversations they've had, their exposure to things that they can compartmentalize and deal with. And other people are completely overwhelmed and it could be the same exact situation. And you're like, nah, man, it doesn't make that other person weaker. It just means that's not immediately in their wheelhouse. And if we value them, Hey man, let's take care of them. Yeah, Melanie actually didn't like calling it post-traumatic stress disorder. She liked to call it injury because she felt like disorder made it sound like something that you couldn't fix. Where injury, she felt placed the emphasis on like rehab and therapy to get better. And it was the first person I'd heard say that. And I'm like, dude, that's really fucking clever. I like that. 
Yeah, there is definitely stigma with the language. We're taught in medical school. The word disorder must mean that it inflicts with your daily life or your professional life so much that it's obvious, right? Like for you to have a disorder, it has to affect your daily life. And there are people where their stress is a daily part of their lives, but they can still navigate the world similar with like quote unquote functioning alcoholics. I was about to say alcoholics, but I didn't want to say it. (laughs) It's the same kind of thing, right? If they can still go to work and work as a, accountant and they're six shots deep all day whatever like it's disordered in the sense that they're dependent on it or it's that impactful in their life but i definitely think changing the language i've heard acute stress disorder post-traumatic stress syndrome or things like that just to change the language so it's more of an approachable topic and i mean man like if that gets people into therapy i don't care what we call it you know what i mean like i'm not so fixated on medical jargon that we got to call it a particular thing. So I think, uh, Mulaney, she's got a a good head on her shoulders. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny, man, because one thing I brought up is exactly what you did. I didn't think of the opt out because I didn't go to Stony Brook. Um, but my thing was like, yo, it should be just part of the schedule where everybody has to fucking walk into that office for half an hour and there's no stigma. You're not the weak one for going in there to seeking help because we all have to go in there. Therefore I can't judge you. And I was like, that's what it should be. Mandatory weekly check-ins or whatever. However, the schedule works, the logistics. Um, yeah, I I like what you said about the opt out. Like if you're that uncomfortable, okay, man, opt out. But the majority, I feel like the majority of people, if it was like, yo, we're blocking this out in your schedule, go get right. You're better to us. You're better to you when you're right. Go get right. Um, yeah. It's huge. Do you uh, happen to, because uh, you have a ton of extra free time in your life. Um, are you familiar <laughs> with the show Billions? Yeah. Okay. Do you watch yeah. it? I haven't in a long time, but I'm a little familiar with the yeah. show. Yeah. So like Wendy, Wendy Rhodes is the, like the stock trader shrink that's right there in the office whenever they're feeling like they're not alpha enough to like make the right risk. She's right. there to like get them right. And they fucking go to her in flocks cause it's performance driven, but there's a metric mm. afterwards. You go to Wendy, you get an extra 30% on your returns. Yeah. And I, I just really wonder how many people you don't want to put people into metrics as far as like patience and, like getting better, but it would be interesting if you could actually like quantify the effect of this is another experiment, the effectiveness of a physician who receives therapy and gets to talk about what they go through versus one who doesn't. And the impact on pay, like even just like a survey with the patients, how they yeah. feel the doctor was towards them. I, I would bet the, ther- the doctor that goes to therapy would receive better ratings. Like yeah. their patients would probably look at them better than a doctor who didn't. Yeah. Those metrics are definitely out there because they keep them. But I think the ethics of forcing people with therapy or only delineating based on therapy status would make um, <laughs> the approval process a little muddy. But like, I'm interested in that too, right? Because subjectively, the attendings that I've worked with, the senior physicians that I've worked with that are happier see more patients, the patients love them more. Like it's a no brainer to me, 
you know. Um, I'd love to see that study too, but <laughs> it's probably never going to happen. Yeah, it's too many <laughs> variables, right? Like there's just yeah. so many fucking variables to parse out, to understand, to get it down to the point of therapy versus no therapy when you're dealing with humans. Yeah. Um, can I ask a little bit about the Twitter? Cause you had mentioned it before we were recording and I'm sure. super interested in the balance of being a doctor, being a professor professional. And like, you're also almost a professional tweeter, dude. I hadn't checked your Twitter <laughs> in forever. Um, after I saw the uh, article and it took me for, I was like scrolling for five minutes to get down to where you tweeted so I could find the article link to read it before the pod. And I'm like, this yeah. dude is online, said the boomer. <laughs> so tell me yeah. a little bit about how it happened. Cause you're up to 35,000 Twitter followers. That's a lot, man. For just a dude who yeah. isn't trying to be that guy. Yeah. So it started for me, um, in medical school, I would write a lot of notes and I would take practice tests. And if I got something wrong, I would write down what I got wrong, a way to remember it, um, in a stupid like memory device on how to get a question right on a test. And I learned that that turns out to be a lot of paper. I was ripping through sheets of paper every day just to like rip them up and throw them out. So I thought one day, early in the pandemic, like, I'm just going to tweet things to myself on how I remember questions for the test. And those memory devices, some were original, some were not, um, resonated with other health professionals on Twitter. Or they would say, well, actually, in real life, because your test isn't real life, um, it's really more like this. And there was a lot of, like, meaningful discussion Um in these tweets so i just kind of kept doing it and it's funny how if you tweet like 20 times a day for a couple of years uh <laughs> like you, you develop an audience and the word audience is so strange to me because i like didn't ask for any of this i'm just a guy trying to like pass medical school um but that was kind of it uh for me i've never i don't tweet about patients i don't talk about real life things i talk about like our board exams and kind of poke fun at our healthcare system or uh, how doctors are made or things like that. Um, and it just kind of snowballed over time that I became this Twitter guy. Um, I've had patients at this point kind of be like, Oh, I follow you on Twitter. And that's weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Is it, it just kind of snowballed. It's so weird because it's like, I, I don't feel like I'm anything special. And then it's like, uh, I have these new residents, these other doctors that are working with me now, and they already knew who I was. Uh, and, and so it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, but yeah, it started out with just me trying to save paper, if I'm honest. And, and now I'm here. So now and now I'm here. Oh, yeah. Did you, how did people find you? Was it colleagues at first? Like it just professional courtesy? Hey, I know you. Let me follow you on Twitter. Were you hashtagging? Was there some other social media thing that my boomer ass doesn't know about? I wasn't doing a goddamn thing, if I'm honest. I like, I'm sure there's some smart way to do hashtags or whatever. I don't understand it at all. I would just kind of say, what's an example? Um, so, as best as I can explain it, if I get a test question and it says a person from Ohio, I already know what the answer is, 
regardless of whatever the rest of the question says. If they say Ohio, it's some fungal infection called histoplasmosis. That's the only reason they would mention the word Ohio. So it's kind of a buzzword, slapstick. There's the answer. Next question. And that format really resonated with a lot of med students because it's absurd, right? Like in real life, if you're a 40-year-old guy from Ohio, literally anything could be happening to you. But within our medical training, it's only one thing. They want you – because the course of study wants you to associate particular words with particular diseases. Exactly. So if there's like a one-month-old baby, it's two things. If you're an African-American woman, it's like three things, which that in that conversation, it became a little more interesting because there's some like cultural bias or racial biases that are ingrained with our training. And I feel like there was a lot to talk about there. Right. Um, So within medical training, a lot of it is if a question is an African-American woman, 80 percent of the time, it's either sickle cell disease or sarcoidosis, two illnesses. And how terrible is it that we as medical trainees kind of reduce a demographic to two things when real life is much more messy than that? I feel like that's where I was able to have more meaningful conversations with people um, because it is true that my, I'm a white cis straight dude from a middle-class family. I have my own biases that someone else will, right? Um, So I feel like that's where I kind of, with the Twitter thing, was able to have more meaningful discussions with professors and deans of med schools and things like that, Um, whereas it started with kind of a slapstick word association game. Man, those are two very interesting things. Um, One, the first one I already went to, and I don't even know if it's the right term, like, confirmation bias where if you're brought up thinking it must be sickle cell how many people get diagnosed with sickle cell that don't have sickle cell because that's what it is on the test that i passed but i don't want to talk about that because i don't know how i can add any more than what i just said but for you to actually engage and be brave enough to people coming back at you on that like that's super interesting to me. The fact that you use Twitter to go for discourse and you didn't get like offended. You weren't shamed. You weren't worried about like being blocked. You're just naturally that nice. I'm so actually, you know what? I'm mad at myself that you are such an awesome person. This conversation has made me want to be a better person. Just talking to you. I, I, that's super nice of you to say. I don't know if I deserve it, but I appreciate it. I, I think part of it was there were definitely times where if I say um, in a tweet, like, why is my medical education telling me that uh, a, a man who has sex with men only has two things, right? That's reductionist. That's not right. Yeah, it's like uh, AIDS and like sexually transmitted diseases. That's like most of the questions, right? Um, Like it's easy to get friends when I say, hey, that's messed up. I have had multiple times in Twitter where my medical education was not the issue. It was my own slapstick reaction to things. So whenever I had um, tweets about pregnancy or breastfeeding or certain communities, 
like we learn a lot of obscure facts about Ashkenazi Jews in medical school. That's a fun fact for you because um, they can have certain metabolic diseases. And there have been times where I've said things insensitively um, for the sake of this is how you get the question right on the test. And I've had to multiple times like delete a tweet and say like, hey, guys, I said this. That wasn't right. My intention is always to educate. But like I missed the mark, my bad. Or like inclusive language is something I've had to learn a lot about, like saying pregnant patients as opposed to pregnant women sometimes to include people with different identities. Like um, I've definitely had mobs thrown at me, but I think people are overall are receptive to me being like, oh, I messed up. Sorry, dudes. Like, here you go, you know? Um, So, yeah, my my experience with Twitter overall has been positive, but there's definitely been growing pains along the way. I think people are just receptive to me knowing, like, I'm not not a smart dude. I'm just a guy, and I happen to be a doctor, and I have a lot to learn. Um, And I think people find that refreshing in a society where doctors seem like, super holier than thou or whatever you know what i mean um yeah i was gonna say hoity-toity i don't know why that popped into my head but hoity-toity popped into my head man it's the it the i don't even know how to say it the right way um though i get trained on it all the time like the inclusive language that you can let slip like i say man and dude all the time I call everybody, man. I'm like, dude, stop, man. And I started with dude and I end it with man. And there's literally no offense. It's completely like, it's actually me trying to be friendly to you and de-escalate and it fucking escalates. But it's real easy when I'm in front of you, I can pick up on your body language. I can be like, oh shit, I apologize. Now I remember whatever it is that I know about you and your background. And I can be like, terrible job, mate. But yeah. the Twitter world seems so scary to try to be intellectually right and funny. Yeah. And it seems like you're trying to almost balance that line a little bit, like pointing out the weirdness, but in a creative way, yeah. which would lead to that sort of criticism. It's nice that you try to, I don't know, man, like you don't put up a fence, like you try to find the right. Yeah, I, this, this might be helpful for you. The, the two things <laughs> that I've met that, that are helpful is one, it's your own intent. The only yeah. thing you have control over is what you intended. That's so true. And most people are trying their best and they intend good things, right? The second thing that has been helpful is if you fuck up and someone calls you out on it, saying thank you before you say I'm sorry is tremendously beneficial. Hmm. So here's an example. I've seen patients that are transgender who I don't know how they identify based on looking at them. I just see their name on the chart and I'm like, Hey man, how's it going? My name is Josh. How's it going, dude? Right. To use your example. And if they say, Oh, I'm, I'm a trans woman. I use she, her instead of, cause that's an uncomfortable situation. Right. And kept, instead of kind of re- reeling back into yourself and be like, ah, fuck, sorry. Like, ah, like, immediately on the defensive so many people react well when you're like oh hey thanks for letting me know my bad she hers gotcha susan how can i help you today or whatever yeah immediately goes better 
because instead of the uncomfortable like reeling back and then the patient reels back and then it's kind of awkward when you acknowledge that it takes courage in some ways to call someone out hmm. like oh hey that wasn't respectful you're advocating like, for yourself hey way to self-advocate yeah. yeah you can do that both ways to be like yeah. oh that was uncomfortable for you thanks for like going out of your shell i appreciate that on twitter that works remarkably well i've had people respond to me with such like a, like anger and vitriol and things like that and i'll dm them and i'll be like hey thanks appreciate it and the amount of times that they're like, like oh, i'm sorry i had a rough day or whatever yeah it comes back to the whole i have no idea what their life experience is you know they could be misgendered every day this could be a huge trigger yeah. for them um so I try not to take it personally, and it's worked out for me thus far. Um, so that's just kind of my way that I navigate the world. How many people do you estimate have passed a medical test because of your tweets? <laughs> um, uh, I don't think I deserve that much credit. I mean, it's I, basically ten percent of the medical population. That's what I've read in certain <laughs> studies. There, there are people. The thing that I love the most is. <laughs> Not when people are like, I passed because of you, because it's, that wouldn't be true. I'm not that special. There are people way smarter than me. But the number of people that were like, I got two questions right on my 100-question test because of you, that means the world to me. Because that means someone who was like doom scroll scrolling on Twitter, there was some hurricane here, shooting there, huh, histoplasmosis, and they get that question right on the test. That's... 100% what I'm for. I'm not here to like change medical education. I'm here to give people like 1% because 1% like every day makes you three times a better person over the year. You know what I mean? That's, that's more what I'm about. The slow addition of making people better. Um, that's, that's what I find super gratifying. Yeah. Why do I immediately want to ask you if that's cheating where if you were in a study group and shared the information, nobody would fucking care, right? And I don't yep. even know if people do care, but do you get any blast back from like testing organizations or professionals to be like, you can't share these secrets. This is blasphemy, cheating. You're, you're making our exam less rigorous. Is there anything <laughs> negative? Like, oh, you're giggling. I think there is. <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting question. Um, because honestly, like, different. I'm sorry, I shouldn't cut you off, but I'm just thinking like okay. in a study group, that's perfectly fine to get around with yeah. a bunch of people. Hey man, here's what I noticed. Hey, here's what, and give tips like that. A fucking tutor, perfectly fine. But Twitter, yeah. is it fine? Yeah. So I think it's fine. That's the first thing. The <laughs> second thing obviously. is, I've had the testing companies reach out to me because they want me to like write questions for them. Um, I just haven't had the time to do that, but there have been a lot of testing companies that are very receptive to this. Um, good for them because they kind of know, like you said, like when people are in their little study groups, this is how this works. And Twitter is like a public space for everyone to do the same thing. So I think they recognize that. So that's good. There are sometimes like subs, sub specialists, like some, like, pediatric infectious disease specialist and only herpes or whatever, where he's like, you're trivializing my 40 year career or whatever. Um, to which 
to them, I say, um, make, make better questions. Like if your issue with me is something I can say in 200 characters, like that's up to you to do better. That's not my problem. I'm just trying to help out some med student on like a shoestring budget, eating ramen noodles and haven't slept in three days. I'm here to help them. I don't, Maybe care about save your feelings about it. $50 for subscribing to some sort of like test prep to get the questions, exactly. which is a real thing. And so, and just so I can clarify while we stay on it for like herpes specialists, like when you take this test, the higher you score in certain things allows you to specialize in particular areas. So if you were to get certain questions about STDs, correct, you could then get into being an STD specialist. Is that how that so, works? Almost. The better you do on these tests directly correlate with your ability to subspecialize in things that pay better. Because uh, the more specialized you up. are, the higher you can charge because you're special. Yeah. So I'm in emergency medicine. It's kind of middle of the road. We're like super extroverted kind of people. We don't care so much about scores in my specialty. But if you <laughs> want to be a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon or a neurosurgeon and make a fuck ton of money you better get every single question right in medical school or else you will not become that right gotcha. so the issue is not if you get the std question right you become an std specialist it's if you get an std question and a heart question and a brain question and all your questions right you can be a dermatologist and only do like pimple popping and make 800 grand a year and work 20 hours a week but you did know you I mean? that earn it did you earn it or did you just follow the formula of that fucking tweeter? <laughs> no, you just follow the formula. Um, that's fortunately, I, I'm less of the, because the people who want to go into plastic surgery are not going to do that with my tweets. But the people who will maybe pass a test or maybe be average instead of a little below average, that that is more what my tweets are for. Um, so the people who say like, hey, I did a little better and now I can be an anesthesiologist because that's what I want to do instead of being like a rural pediatrician or something less competitive. Um, that's more what I'm for. The people who want to make a million dollars a year, they can do whatever the fuck they want. I'm not doing it for them. But um, yeah, that's Dude, kind of. That's a very, to go back to the student loan point, like that's super interesting with earning potential because Hopefully in a society, you would want people that are educated and it sucks if you're so overworked, overstudied, like school's hard, man. And doing it for years is hard. And there's a lot of pressure that if you haven't gotten past like a bachelor's, it is hard to understand the grind of I'm growing up, but I'm still like a fucking 17 year old with due dates. Yeah. What is this about? Yeah. Like I got to show up to class and like take my like earbuds out and I can't bring food to some classes. What are we doing here? Like, I'm not an adult yeah. dude. I, I, right. I have a mortgage. So the <laughs> fact that the higher you score, the more options and the better your earning potential based kind of on a test, like that kind of sucks. You would hope it would be a yeah. little more merit. What's the word? Meritocratic. Even though the test yeah. I get is a metric, I would want it to be a more holistic metric. And I would hopefully, believe in the market of like, okay, you got this test score, but now you've gotten to this level of whatever dermatology, but clearly you're not competent. You're going to have to go back. Yeah. Like you would just hope the market you, would weed you out. Your residency would weed you out. Yeah. You would hope 
it works out that way. But I want you to have the option. Similar. I don't want the test to hold you back. I want you, if you make it, fuck man, fuck the test. You can make it like go earn, go make that money. Yeah. I, (laughs) I, I wish it worked that way. It really, it really doesn't, man. Like there are, if you don't hit your scores, like your school, because like we were talking about before, a school wants you to complete medical school, right? But within that, they want you to get into a subspecialty. Like your medical school, if you're interested in dermatology, but if you are not at all competitive for that, your med school will be like, hey, figure something else out. Like be a pediatrician or be just a regular primary care doctor or whatever because you're not going to match into dermatology and that will look bad on us and it will look bad on you. Right. So it, I really wish it was like the only people who become plastic surgeons are super into, um, I mean, they do more than like butt lips or whatever, but like (laughs) facial surgeries and cosmetic shit or whatever, but it's really not that way. I've met a lot of people that are like, um, I'm going to settle for taking out gallbladders instead of doing plastic surgery because I wasn't competitive for it or the other way. I've met a lot of people who go into emergency medicine, which will pay, let's say, 300 grand a year, instead of family medicine, which pays 200 grand a year, because that's 100 grand. That means a lot to people, you know? And I wish we were in a system that rewarded people based on how good they were at their job, whatever that is. Um, But we're in a healthcare system that rewards other things, regardless of what you're into. yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's just kind of the game we're playing, unfortunately. And I don't want to put you in a box with this question, but I feel like it's almost a natural transition. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like you probably have ideas. Is there a fix to our medical system? And because I can never ask a question and not like say anything, I have to be super fucking wordy. Um, I've had a bunch of Canadians on the pod and... Mm the freedom they have, even though they say their medical system fucking sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've, I've not had, I think I've had 40 people, 30. I'd, I'd be confident in 30. I've had 30 Canadians on from all over Canada, not just like one little geographical area. And yeah. none of them are like, they're cool if you got like a little basic issue, but the whole like specialized thing it takes forever to get real shit done for them. And there's this backlog, but you balance that with, they have the security of, I can take risks. I can go elsewhere. I'm not going to leave Canada because how am I going to have insurance? If something goes bad, it's all paid for. So um, all that to lead up to, do you have changes? What's the solution to the American healthcare system? When you become, what's the highest ranking officer you can be? to change this shit in the government. Dr. Fauci, the next Dr. Fauci. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, man, that is, if I actually knew a good answer to this question, I would be so rich, I would never need to practice medicine. But I, I foresee an answer to our healthcare system being closer to Australia and New Zealand than Canada. So in Canada, if you have an issue that is life threatening, like my heart is not working and I'm bleeding into my belly, they will, they'll 
they'll fix your shit. Yeah. They'll get it together. But if you need, like, a hip replaced, but, like, you're fine, and, like, you can still go to work and whatever, like, you could be on a waiting list for a while, um, and that's kind of their system. The New Zealand and Australian system is more, hey, we have academic centers and, like, catch net hospitals that are federally funded, and if you are the poorest person in the world, you can go to this hospital and get good care. Um, it's an academic center, so you might have to deal with med students or residents like me in addition to the senior doctors, but like you can get care. like Whatever you need, you can get it. In addition to that, if you have the money, then you can do private shit, right? Um, that's kind of the New Zealand system, Australian system in 30 seconds. I see the U.S. going closer to that where they have more Medicare or Medicaid coverage, but still the option to have some platinum plan if you have the money to afford it. Um, I see that happening. So let me stop you right there. As soon as I hear the words platinum plan, I go to the dermatologist plastic surgeon example of, so I get the worst doctor. Because what's the incentive? If I pay for the platinum plan, then that doctor makes millions. And now I'm left with your bitch ass who hasn't read Josh's tweets and can't pass a fucking exam. So that's (laughs) who I get. Am I wrong to think that way, that that would be what occurs? So my answer to that becomes that becomes more of a state issue. So in New York State, by definition, no New York State hospitals are for profit. Like an urgent care might be for profit, but no hospitals are for profit in uh, New York State. And X amount of 10% or 20% or whatever of your patients must be Medicare or Medicaid patients in New York State, Hmm. right? Florida might be different. They might have no obligation in Florida. So you might get that. I don't know actually about Florida for all your listeners. Don't send me hate mail. Um, (laughs) But in a different state, they might have no obligation. So you might actually get that there where the person who covers Medicaid has never seen a patient in 30 years and they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. But like, then it becomes more of a state issue. Um, that's, that's kind of the response to that question. Yeah, I, guess. I feel just in the most basic way, if I'm, if I have money and I'm paying for extra, you would think that doctor would then make extra, right? Like it, that just seems, yeah common sensey. The one thing I don't, I don't like about the Medicaid Medicare system is there don't seem to be enough people who can make good money doing it. It's almost like those doctors would be like the teachers with bachelors where it's like, yeah, you're kind of middle-class, but you're, you have zero fucking chance of being above that. And it's like, you just kind of want to not, not to, belittle the position, but like you want to squander your opportunity. You're just content. You're a jellyfish in the sea going where the current goes. And it's, I I don't, I don't know if it's the competitor in me where I like a capitalistic society where I want the best to be rewarded, but I want that to be available to the most amount of people. And I don't think profit should be put on people. So I don't know how to balance that. And I'm just thinking out loud out here, man. I'm not expecting some like come to Jesus moment or like, Oh, this is the meaning of life from you. But it's, 
I've never spoken to somebody who's young enough and idealistic enough on the pod to like explore this concept. Yeah, that's that's a fortunate thing about a state like New York, where it's like a certain percentage of your patients must be Medicare or Medicaid. Because I hear what you're saying, like, hypothetically, the smartest, most skilled doctor in a capitalistic society gets reimbursed the best because they're the best. And that's how our society works. Um, in a state like New York, 10% of their patients have to be Medicaid patients, no matter how good you are. Um, it's not a meritocracy in the sense of they're not only seeing the patients that pay them the best, but it's equitable in the sense that the best people can still provide the best care for the people, regardless if they can afford it or not. And is there like um, a subsidy? So like if you're on Medicaid, and I, I guess the reason I'm thinking of this, like my mom recently had to set up for Medicaid and all of her assets go away. And then she's in a nursing home and basically you're like, hey, you can keep 50 bucks a month. So if I, maybe I need to look into this in Delaware, but like if I knew that her foot doctor had to take a certain percentage that by like law, I'm like, yeah, 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 I need to check your books, dude. Or wait, wait, I want to go to this guy or this person. There was my gender bias. And yeah. I want to have, <laughs> I, I want my mom to be seen by a better physician. Yeah. I, I feel like. <laughs> but like the doctor have, makes uh, money back with like the government. So when you see the Medicaid person, you get like whatever, five grand. I'm just making up the number like, okay, Medicaid covers a thousand. Typically you make 8,000 per visit. So we're going to cover yeah. the difference. Is that basically how it works? So we've officially entered a, an area where I'm not an expert, but what I do know is there are, if you are a Medicare or Medicaid patient, you could be making 10 or 20 cents on the dollar, right? Gotcha. So like regardless of how much it costs to provide foot doctor, like a bunion removal, if they're a private insurance patient, you'll make whatever it costs. But if they're a Medicare or Medicaid person, you might make 20 cents on the dollar compared to the private insurance person. Mm -hmm. So the difference might be how many Medicare or Medicaid patients do you have to see in Delaware or New York or whatever. Um, a different model is, um, which I don't know when they decide to do this, is someone decides a bunion removal for a podiatrist costs $100. And if you spend $70 to do a bunion removal, then you just get $30. And if you spend more than that, then you lose money, right? Mm. So that's a little more American in the system of like, you need to spend enough resources that you're not losing money, but not so much that the outcomes are bad. Um, the decision-making within that is different in all 50 states. So I don't know what it is in Delaware. Um, but I know for a fact that if <laughs> I'm a senior physician, I don't want to fucking think about that. Yeah. That's the other thing about it as well. I just want to be a podiatrist. I just want to look at feet and do bunion removals or look at toenails. Like, I don't want to think about how much it costs, right? That's another thing yeah, that that's... people don't often think about the healthcare system is like your, your doctor doesn't, doesn't think about how much these things cost or how much they're getting paid. Yeah, they they're just not... want to be a good doctor. Yeah. They're not CFOs. They're not accountants. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, man. I should that was me being terrible and cutting you off again. Um, but no, that was good. That was my thought. Like honestly, I'm not an expert in these things, and I think the healthcare system is um, by design really, really complicated. Um, so that even your doctor has no idea what it's going to cost. Like the amount of times I've heard, even as a resident, how much does this CT scan cost? I have no idea. Yeah. I do 30 CT scans every shift and I have no idea how much it costs because it's different for every person that I see, yeah. you know, it's, it's super complicated here, partially for no reason. Um, and I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. Cause if you incentivize and maybe that's the flaw is the fact that we want to, and like you've brought it up a little bit, it's like doctors are elevated in society, right? So you want them to be rewarded because the work they do, what, what do you want more than your health? What do you want right. more than to feel good? That that's like top of the fucking pinnacle right there. So you would, you don't want you getting paid the same as, labor that's easily replicable, right? Not to right. belittle any labor, but if it can be taught within an hour of training, I like, I'm a little better than that. I can fucking sew your finger back on when it gets cut off and you can move it again. Yeah. That's pretty special. So I want you to earn more. I feel like that's right, but I don't know how to make that right for everybody who can't pay you for sewing my finger back on because I also want everybody who gets a finger cut off to get their finger sewed back on. And it's yeah. terrible that the system has not figured out how to set a standard. But I guess then the standard wouldn't be a market and then it would be, I don't know. Maybe I've been listening to too many economic podcasts with Lex Friedman. Um, <laughs> like to that's like messing my mind up for thinking about what is right. But yeah, it sucks. it's hard. You either go too far into the economics of it and you lose a lot of the personhood of it, right? right? A lot of this conversation was, can you be a doctor and a person, right? Yeah. Can you look at that old lady's hand? Can you ask about the guy's tattoo? Can you just like be a person? You can't fully be a person, fully be a capitalist and fully be height of care and like fully not work enough so you can go to your kids like track meet or whatever. Like yeah. you can't, you can barely do one of them, let alone four. Yeah. Um, so and it's that's terrible. definitely one of the big challenges. Like, I mean, I, like I want to be like, you should have ambition to be like, yeah, you can buy the fucking ski house. You can buy the lake house. You can buy the beach house and you can have your own house. Right. And like, yeah. You should earn that if you're good enough, but I don't want you giving me a bunch of fucking tests and running my bill up so you get that. So there's that weird yeah. ethics, right? And I don't want you turning away patients who you can't make money on, but I want you to make money. Man, it's yeah. it's a weird fucking paradigm. It's a weird yeah. web that pulls on each other. Um, Josh, I'm sorry, man. I've almost kept you for two hours and I shouldn't take that much of your time because I'm so scared what you're going to bill me. <laughs> Just nice. kidding. Just kidding. Um, is there something we haven't gotten into that you wanted to at this late night? Which so, I'm fine with. I don't want to like cut you short if you have time, but you are in your car out of respect for your daughter's sleep habits. So I don't want to <laughs> keep you in your, what was it? A Corolla? <laughs> 
my my 03 Camry. Camry, I'm uh, sorry. It's beautiful. Camry's a step um, above Corolla, so you are doing yeah. well in life. <laughs> yeah, there's no air conditioning in this car, but I'm doing okay. Um, there, there's a couple things. Um, I want to let the non-healthcare people know that I hope you guys would not put judgment on me for the things that I don't know. For the same reason that I hope your healthcare provider does not put judgment on you for the things you don't know. I feel like there's been a lot of um, animosity regarding the COVID vaccine, which is all, it's very new. It can be pretty difficult for people to understand. What I've told people um, who I've interacted with who don't want the COVID vaccine, um, one of the first things I say is, I do not get my oil changed in my car nearly enough. Like, I think I went four years before getting my oil changed in my car, and I had like 20,000 miles, far too long. Way to test that standard, man. Maybe that's why the AC broke at the same time. (laughs) Probably. But for the same reason, I hope that my mechanic doesn't think I'm a moron because I have no idea what cars are. I hope your healthcare provider does not judge you because I've spent my entire life, I'm 27 years old, my entire life has been becoming a doctor. This is all I know. I hope your doctor gives you the same respect that I hope you would give me, the idiot who hasn't gotten their oil changed in four years. That's the first thing I want to impart on people. Um, It's a great analogy. Because I feel like in, in my echo chamber of all of us are doctors or all of us are healthcare people, um, I hope we kind of recognize that not everyone has that same life experience and we shouldn't be judged by it. Um, that's the first thing. And if you're not getting that, find a different doctor. There's plenty of us and some of us are normal. Um, <laughs> the, the, the other thing is if there's any listeners to this who are thinking about, um, I know about more of the medical school process, but if you are thinking about becoming a nurse or a PA or any kind of avenue that sees sick people, feel free to, like DM me, especially if you have no family members in this field. Like it's very intimidating, um, but I promise some of us are normal, and I'm happy to help um, because we need more just normal people um, in healthcare fields, and perhaps not as many like products of like neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons in the world. We just need more just like, normal folks. Um, so feel free to reach out. Those are the big things that I impart to people. Dude, I. I love the fact, and like I strive for that with my daughter. And in this conversation, I didn't realize there would be a bit of bias and possibly rightly so, because you do want to have stringent measures in order to get highly qualified people. But the fact that like she would come from a family that's like teacher and school counselor, like damn, that's going to be harder for you to get into medical school. And I wouldn't even know how to help her. So the fact that you're going there, because why do I want that? Because you want what's better for your kids. And I'm hoping she could jump above options financially from the means that I and her mother are able to provide. So that's really cool that you're willing to take your time to try to share that aside from tweet direct answers to tests, like to give a little bit of guidance, man. That's really, really kind of you. Yeah. I, I appreciate the kind words, but I'm mostly just trying to pay forward the time that people gave me. Um, I feel like a lot of this is people paying it forward to other people. So I'm happy to do that for other, 
other folks. Dude, I think it should be, man. I really, um, I, I think that's the best way to live in life is just try to help others because then you just, I don't know if it's super woo woo, but you create these really good vibes, um, that how can you go bad creating good vibes? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like how can you go bad if you're just trying to help people? Yeah. So <laughs> to be a little more candid lately, the best feedback I ever got from patients was like, I don't care how smart you are, but like, you're a nice guy. Like, that's the best thing I can ever hear from a patient. Like, I don't give a shit if you think I'm a smart dude or whatever, but if I made you feel nice and if I was approachable, like that should be the metric of success. So I'm glad at least I have a little part of that here as well. <laughs> yeah. And I... It's funny you keep saying like not a smart guy because clearly you're smart enough to take a bunch of tests and know a bunch of big words, right? <laughs> and like, and I, I think that a lot of people, it's easy to get around groups where you forget what people outside of that group are, like we've said, echo chambers. And if you're competent but kind, what else can you hope for in a moment of need? Right. That's it. And fuck, man. And I think most people will, in a moment of need, go for kind, even over competent. Because they're like, that guy's a dick. Yeah. I don't trust him. Something must be wrong. Yeah. Dude, I love it. I love the personality. Never change, Josh. Never change. <laughs> you got him, man. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for coming on and um, giving up a little bit of your sleep, a little bit of your downtime to uh, be on the pod and let people get to know you, man. I really appreciate it. And, um, I just, I have high hopes for you. I can't wait till in 30 years, I see you with a new pandemic in 2050 when you're on <laughs> CNN and Fox, just telling people to calm the fuck down and like giving holistic approaches. I can't wait for it. <laughs> Appreciate it, Sean. Thank you. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks, man. You too. Bye. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.